0: Well, if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to uh, go ahead and open them up. Um, Some of our uh, congregation folks will look at their Bible either on a tablet or uh, on a phone. That's perfectly fine. If you want to get out your phone or tablet, I I like to use the Bible, uh, a book. Um, I'm a little bit old school uh, when it comes to stuff like that. And I want to invite you to go to the Old Testament Book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And so it's pretty far back in the Old Testament. And uh, I love how Jeff kind of set it up this morning that uh, the book of Ruth is a little bit like a Disney story. Um, I I view the book of Ruth more like Jerry Springer. I think it's uh, much more like that. It's a little bit more real. It's a little bit more raw. And it's it's frankly a little bit more uh, painful. So over the next couple weeks, we are going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Ruth. And uh, so I want to invite you to bring your Bibles each and every week as we go on that journey. And over and over, week after week, we're going to be looking at this idea or this concept of the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God, the big idea of this question or this uh, idea or this concept is, um, is God really in control I mean, is God really in control? Because sovereignty means all-powerful and uh, in control. And so is God really in control? I mean, we open up the news and we see uh, fires uh, burning the West Coast in in massive amounts. And we ask ourselves, where's God in the midst of that? Is God really sovereign? Is God really in control? Is God really all-powerful? Why doesn't God do something about that? Or we look around the world and and we ask ourselves, is God really in control in the midst of the coronavirus that has really kind of ravished the world and uh, people are struggling with health issues as well as economic issues, social issues, mental health issues from all the isolation? Is God really in control Is God really sovereign in the midst of uh, the division and the hatred in our nation, in our communities, people screaming at each other? If God's really in control, why does God allow this stuff to happen? Maybe more close to home, is God really in control? If God was in control, why didn't I get that job that I thought I was going to get? Why am I struggling so much in my work? If God was really in control, why did that relationship uh, just fall apart? If God was really in control, why did God allow the economic hardships in my family? If God is really in control, why is God so silent? And this is what it means to kind of camp out on this idea, this question of God's sovereignty. If God is so powerful and if God is so in control, why does he allow so much mess and muck and problems in the world and so much mess and muck and problems in my own life? Is God really in control? Everybody got your Bibles open to the book of Ruth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts and minds to study your word this morning, we thank you, God, for all the ways in which you are indeed sovereign. You are indeed all-powerful. You are indeed in control of everything in the world. And yet, God, at the same time, it's so hard to believe that you're sovereign because things feel like they are spinning out of control, and we're just hanging on, and we are white-knuckling, Lord. So, God, as we hear this story, of Ruth. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit might speak to us, guide us, and help us, Lord, as Jeff said at the top of our service this morning, to just be reminded that you are fighting for us, that you are with us through whatever challenges we are facing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start with Ruth 1.1. Um, here we go. In the days when the judges ruled... Uh, There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So I'm going to stop there just for a moment and kind of just give you a little bit of background here. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, immediately what you need to know about the days when the judges ruled is this was a really bad time in the life of Israel, God's people. They had just moved into the promised land, and in the days of the Judges, there was chaos. There was anarchy. Over and over and over throughout the book of Judges, we hear this phrase time and time again, in those days, everyone did what was right in their own mind, in their own eyes. In those days, there was not a centralized, people were not paying attention to God's word. Everybody just did whatever they were thinking, whatever they were feeling, They just everybody did whatever they wanted. Very, very similar to today. I'm just going to do whatever I want. It was a time of great disobedience. It was a time of great rebellion against God. So uh, in the days when the judges ruled, that's what's going on. It says there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land, so not only is everybody being disobedient towards God, but there's also economic hardship, much like today, the economic hardship of the world. And it says, so a man from Bethlehem, and this is a significant detail, Bethlehem, because Bethlehem in the Hebrew language means the house of bread. So there's a bit of a play on words here. There's a little bit of irony here, and I think there's a whole lot of comedy here because in the land of bread, there's a, there's a famine. It's like saying we all went to pizza ranch buffet, ate and ate and ate, and we were starving, Right? That's what the writer is telling us in the book of Ruth, and everybody's kind of got a little chuckle on their face as they're reading through the story, if you were all Hebrew and you understood uh, the context of this story. And uh, so they were going on this journey. Uh, They went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab to live there. Now, for those of us who live in 2020 and uh, in this part of the world, you may not understand the significance, again, of the details of this story. It says that they went to go live in a place called Moab. And we think to ourselves, well, that makes plenty of sense, right? Famine here, problems here, disobedience here. Let's go over there. But the problem with uh, this family moving to Moab is that was a big no-no. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, God came to God's people and said, here's what I want to do is I want to bring you together. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to set you apart. This is what it means to be holy. Holy doesn't necessarily mean perfect. It means set apart. God says, I'm going to make you a holy nation. I'm going to set you apart. And you're going to be a city on a hill, a light for all the nations to see. I will be your God and you will be my people. And we call this the covenant relationship between God and God's people. And God's people were supposed to be this obedient city on a hill to the nations. They weren't supposed to leave. God said, don't go to Moab. They are pagans. They worship other gods. And we think, yeah, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that is these other pagan nations, especially in the land of Moab, uh, they perform child sacrifice. Now, some of you have got junior hires. You might think, well, again, what's wrong with that, right? But I mean, they really practiced child sacrifice. It was not good. It was filled with idolatry. It was filled with all sorts of sexual immorality. They did horrible, horrible things in the land of Moab. And so here's this Israelite family and they're like, it's bad here. Let's go somewhere else. And they go to Moab and every Israelite, every Hebrew who's reading this story. And what I want you to hear today, this action by this Jewish family was an action of great disobedience towards God. That's what's going on here in the story. Um, Let's see. Uh, Verse 3. Now Elimelech, uh, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. So remember this Jewish family, they go off to Moab uh, to escape the short-term bad situation that was going on, and shortly after they get there, um, he dies, which, of course, completely defeats the purpose of leaving in the first place, right? But then the second problem is the sons of uh, Naomi, they go and marry two Moabite women. Again, this is a big no-no according to God's word. Don't do that. Don't mix with those pagans because when you marry uh, pagans, uh, they're going to bring you down. And that's a problem, so don't do that. And, and so, you know, frankly, part of this story, it's, it's like father like son. Dad disobeys God, so of course the boys disobey God as well. And so they marry these two uh, Moabite uh, young women, uh, Orpah and Naomi. Verse in the middle of four. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her sons and her husband. So things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. It's just It just goes from bad to worse time and time again. And there's Naomi. She's in this foreign land, this land of pagans, away from her people, away from God's people. She's all alone. She's got these daughter-in-laws who are pagans, um, uh, Orpah and Ruth. She's like... What's going on, God? What's going on? And I can about imagine in that moment, Naomi is asking herself, why, God? Did I do something wrong to offend you, God? Why is this happening to me? In the midst of things that have, you know, were, were, seemed like they were getting a little bit better. Now, all of a sudden, the other shoe drops and things fall apart. Why? And I want to ask you this morning. You ever find yourself having that conversation with God? Why do you let this happen, God? We're just trying to take care of our family. We're just trying to do the right thing. Then my finances fall apart. A relationship falls apart. God, you didn't heal my son. Why, God? Why? And I think oftentimes as we go through these seasons of pain and hurt and hardship, it's a natural question to ask of why? Why, God, why? You know, sometimes we even feel a little bit guilty about asking God why. Is that okay? I mean, can we ask God why? Or is that just kind of a, a statement of, of disobedience? And if you're here this morning and you're wondering if it's okay to ask God why, I want to remind you of Psalm 22, where David is writing down in uh, in his journal, "My God, My God, why, why have you forsaken me?" David asked God why. Later, as Jesus was dying on the cross, some of his very last words were quoting Psalm 22, "My God." My God, why have you forsaken me? And so this morning, I want you to hear that if David can ask why, if Jesus can ask why, I think it's okay for you to ask God, why? God, why is this happening in my life? If you are so sovereign, if you are so good, if you are so all powerful, why has this happened? Help me out. What verse are we on here? Six. Thank you. When Naomi heard uh, in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, "'Go back, each of you, to your mother's home.'" May the Lord show you kindness, if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who will become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. And so in this moment, Naomi gets very practical She looks at these young women, Orpah and Ruth, and says, Hey, here's the deal. I'm going home. And I need you to go back to uh, the land of Moab. And by the way, you probably want to just go ahead and marry some uh, pagan Moab guys, have some pagan children, uh, and live the rest of your lives. uh, You're uh, worshiping these false gods. And by the way, uh, in Moab, uh, you will be separated from God forever. See, Naomi is about ready to claim the same mistake that her husband did, Elimelech. She just looked at the short-term situation and said, I'm out of here. This hurts. This is painful. I'm not staying. And so she looks at her daughter-in-laws and says, you guys go home. And she's not, at that moment in time, not really worried about their lives other than just, just go take care of yourselves. I need to take care of myself. And I think there's a lesson here for us as well. That as we go through life and we experience pain and hardship and struggle, the temptation is always on the here and the now and the short-term consequences. We, we ignore the long-term consequences of what's uh, the possibilities for our lives. And so confirmation students, Sarah Kate, Eden. Nicholas, Jamie, where's Jamie? Right here, right in front. If you've been sleeping up until now, here's what I want you to hear. As you guys go through life, you're going to make lots and lots of decisions. And you're always going to be drawn to the short-term, quick fix expedient things that are just going to be like, oh, I want to do that because that's going to feel easy. It's going to feel simple, but there are going to be consequences. And I want to invite you guys in your life in Jesus Christ to focus on the long-term consequences on the things that matter weeks, months, years, even for all eternity down the road. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ to not just look at the expedient in the here and now, but to look long term. And that's the challenge for all of us, of course. But I want our young people especially to hear that today because I think the consequences in their lives are so great. Verse 16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, the interesting thing about this story is Orpah... uh, Naomi says to Orpah, go home, go back to Moab. And we never hear about uh, Orpah for the rest of her life in Scripture. Ruth says, I'm not going that. I'm not doing that. That's too easy. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go to a place that is unknown. I'm going to go to a place to worship your God. And in your Bibles, if you look at your Bibles, uh, it, it talks about this word, the Lord. It says that your God will be my God. The word there is Lord. And in the Hebrew language, that, that is Yahweh. And that's not just any, just any kind of generic or general, your God will be my God. In that moment, Ruth is saying, your God, Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God of all creation will be my God. See, this is Ruth's conversion moment. It's very, very specific. Ruth says in that moment, I'm walking away from all those other gods in Moab, and I'm going to put a stake in the ground, and I'm going to walk forward with you into your land. And we just cannot uh, underestimate, and there's so much we could say about this one declaration of Ruth uh, that Ruth makes, uh, but I'm just going to give you three here this morning, uh, some observations, uh, what's going on, I think, uh, in this declaration. So, Number one, God promises to meet us in our pain. In that moment, Ruth is experiencing extraordinary pain. Naomi is experiencing extraordinary pain. Orpah is experiencing extraordinary pain. And in that moment, God shows up and meets Ruth in a powerful way. She has this conversion moment. And she says, you've called me to go this way, uh, Naomi, but I'm going with you. And God promises to meet us in our pain and in our struggle. And I don't know what pain or struggle you might have brought to worship this morning, but I want you to hear these words from Ruth, from Jesus that I will be with you always to the very end of the age. God promises to be with us in our pain. The great writer, uh, theologian C.S. Lewis once said that, you know, God whispers in our happiness. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping generation. I love that quote, and I've shared that with you before. But I want to just share that again because you need to hear it again. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse you. And Ruth is clearly roused. She comes alive and she meets Jesus in this moment. Number two, God promises that when pain comes along, that he doesn't, uh, we don't just go through it alone, but he gives us a community to walk together. God promises to give us community To go through our pain, that's what the church is. See, oftentimes we we think we're supposed to go through our pain and our hardship and our struggle on our own, but pain is never uh, in our lives just meant for us to deal with on our own. We're meant to bear one another's burdens, as Scripture says. We're meant to go through life together, uh, go through our struggles together, go through our pain, our hurts together. Anybody ever watched Animal Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, on on Animal Kingdom, sometimes you'll see this lion prowling right through the grass, and there's a group of impala off in the distance, right? And the lion is watching and watching this herd of impala uh, together, and they've got a keen eye to see what's going on. And pretty soon, uh, you see like a a three-legged impala uh, just kind of off by itself. You know what the lion does? Yeah, he locks and loads on that three-legged impala, right? And then as you watch this lion over and over creeping through the grass, guess who the lion attacks? Eileen, right? The impala. That's who's vulnerable. That's who gets taken down. And it's the same way in our lives and in this world. Scripture tells us that Satan is alive and well, and he's sneaking around, and he's looking for each one of us. And Satan is always looking for the vulnerable, always looking for the isolated, the one that's off by themselves. See, when Satan sneaks up on the church, Satan has no place here this morning. You know that, right? We sing and say and pray the name of Jesus. Satan is nowhere around here this morning. But the forces of evil are out in this world today with those who are isolated, those who are alone, those who are separated. That's why we need to be together on Sunday morning as the church. We need to be a herd. We need to be a community that do life together. And when one of us is wounded, we need to take that wounded impala in our midst, surround that one person in our congregation and just say, let us protect you together. And some of you are thinking to yourself, well, I'm great. I'm not wounded. I'm fine. Awesome. Well, we need you to be a part of the herd so you can help defend the rest of us because there are plenty of people who are wounded and hurting and struggling with all sorts of pain. So we need everybody to be a part of this herd we call Faith Lutheran Church. You know, in fact, in, in two weeks, we're going to have a, a class right after worship. I still haven't figured out what we're going to call it, uh, but it's basically a new member class, maybe if you will. And the, and the idea is we're just going to hang out for maybe an hour or so after worship and I'm just going to share with you a little bit about who we are as a faith community, and you can learn a little bit about who we are, and you can kind of look at the herd of Faith Lutheran Church that were disciples, growing disciples, and we can talk a little bit about that. We can unpack that a little bit, and then you can decide, hey, I think I want to be a part of that herd. Because if you're not part of a herd, the enemy has his eye on you, and he's looking to pick you off. And so I want to invite you in two weeks from today, I think it's August 27th, September 27th, to stick around, to put that on your calendar for a little conversation after worship. Number three, I think only a sovereign, all-powerful God could truly be moving in this story. I mean, like I said, this is a story that it seems more like Jerry Springer. This is a really messed up story. This is a story of God's people who are incredibly disobedient. And God can take some really disobedient people, a guy by the name of Limelech and, and, and uh, his disobedience. He can take uh, the, these, these women who are absolutely brokenhearted. He can even take two young Moabite pagan girls and use them. God can take all the mess of this story and use uh, for God's glory and for God's plan. So here's the spoiler alert. Ruth is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Think about that. She's a pagan when we meet her. God can use a pagan, uh, disobedient woman and family to be in the genealogy and in the line of Jesus, and that's down the road. See, and I think if God can use someone like Ruth, I think God can use someone like you and me. That's what God does. He specializes in messes. So if you've come here this morning and your life is a bit of a mess, welcome to Faith Lutheran Church. We're a bunch of messy people. And God uses messy people to do extraordinary things. And that's God's specialty. In the moment, keep in mind, Ruth and Naomi, they have no idea where this journey's going. All they know, where, where I just finished reading, is that their hearts are broken, uh, their husbands are all dead, um, things are bad, and they're going back home, and they just don't know what the future looks like. And I think that's oftentimes our story, Right? In the midst of our hurt, our pain, our heartache, we're just on this journey and we're not sure where it's going or where it might just lead. And I just told you the end of the story, that Jesus is a part of that. And I think that's the faith and the hope that we have as Christ followers, that someday down the road, Jesus is going to show up in a profound way, and meet us, and do something really, really extraordinary, even as he meets us in our moment right now. About 150 years ago, uh, there was a very wealthy lawyer uh, who lived in the Chicago land. Uh, His name was uh, Horatio uh, Spafford. And he was a very wealthy lawyer, and he started to accumulate uh, some real estate. And he became very... Uh, wealthy, he became uh, very successful, um, and uh, he he uh, acquired all this real estate. But in, you might recall, in the in uh, about 150 years ago, was the Great Chicago Fire, and he lost a lot of his buildings and a lot of his real estate. But Spafford was also a man of faith. He was very involved in his Presbyterian church, and uh, he was a big follower of D. L. Moody. And if you don't know who D.L. Moody is, he was kind of the forerunner of Billy Graham. He was a great evangelist uh, in Chicago at the time, and he was doing some extraordinary things. And Spafford, you know, in the midst of all his business dealings, he started following Moody and said, I want to support that ministry. I want to be a part of that herd of Christ followers. And so as Moody starts traveling uh, across the United States and around the world, uh, Spafford starts traveling with him. And in 1872, it was November, uh, Moody was over in Europe doing what Moody did, preaching the gospel to the Europeans. And Spafford said, I want to go and support that ministry. And just as the, he and his uh, wife, Anna, and their four girls were getting ready to board a ship, uh, they all of a sudden had some uh, real estate business dealings that he needed to take, uh, take, uh, pay attention to. So he said to his wife, Anna, and the girls, hey, you guys go on ahead I'm going to take care of some business here. I'll catch up with you later. Um, just keep, keep, keep following Moody, and I'll be right there. Well, on November 22nd, as uh, Anna uh, and, and the children, the three girls, were traveling over to Europe from the United States, their ship was T-boned, their French ship was T-boned uh, by a British cargo vessel. And in that moment, over the course of the night, 266 people lost their lives, including all four Spafford girls. Somehow, miraculously, Anna made it over to England. She sent a telegraph back home to Horatio with two words in this telegram, Saved Alone. In that moment, you can imagine Spafford was devastated that he had lost his four girls. Now, those of you who are parents here, I would imagine most of us cannot imagine losing one child. They lost four children and he was devastated. So Spafford got on the next boat going over to Europe And as they were getting close to the area where the ship went down, the French vessel went down, he pulled out a piece of paper and began to write. He began to write the words of a familiar hymn that we know today. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. And you might ask, how in the world could this guy write, It is well with my soul? Notice he didn't say, um, uh, write, it is well with my heart. Notice he didn't say, it is well with my mind. Notice he didn't say, it is well with my family. Because all those things were full of pain and heartache and brokenness. He said, it's well with my soul. Spafford in that moment had this incredible faith to not look in the here and now, but to have eyes for eternity, that someday God is going to make some kind of purpose and some kind of meaning out of this incredible tragedy in my life. Oh sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, is the nail to the cross, I bear it no more, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. Spafford, when he was tempted to look at his hurt and his pain and his struggle in the moment, said, in this moment, I'm going to look up. I'm going to look up to the cross and recognize that the the cross proclaims not only the forgiveness of sin, but the pain and the suffering that Jesus Christ went through for you and for me and for all of humanity. And the cross reminds us that we have an eternity with Jesus waiting for us. And so he reminds us that our identity is not in this world, not in this kingdom, not in the hurts, not in the, the heartache of this world, but our identity is in the cross. And that makes us citizens of another kingdom. And I don't know if you've ever been around people who've gone through extraordinary pain and suffering, and yet they remain so strong and so faithful But they've got this view of eternity uh, that Spafford concludes. Oh, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even though it is well with my soul. It is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. And I hear these words and I'm reminded that this is the invitation for you and for me to look beyond our hurts, our present struggles, our pain in this world and ask God why. Continue to ask God why for sure. God, if you're so good, if you're so powerful, if you're so in control, why is this happening? And then after we ask why, We look beyond to the cross and beyond the cross to all eternity where Jesus reminds us there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more struggle, that you will be healed forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for this extraordinary story, a story that uh, begins so messed up, so broken, uh, so filled with heartache, so filled with pain. And God, I'm just grateful that your word continues to speak to us today because, Lord, it feels like our world is out of control and we're asking why and where are you? God, our lives, our personal lives are broken and God, we need you to just show up and meet us like you met Ruth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.